Hey guys, Jim Cox, Devon Financial Partners, Park Avenue Securities, and I'm here today with an interview with Kelly Doerr. Um, we had actually chatted um, earlier in the year about the subject of human trafficking and what she's doing to, uh, to fight trafficking and um, just some of her background. So I wanted to, I know she's had a lot of, um, I've seen a lot of updates and I just wanted to kind of get an up, uh, update on like what's going on in the, the issue of trafficking and what she's seeing and just kind of talk about some other issues that I've seen as well. So Kelly, thanks for taking the time to chat. No problem. Thanks for having me back on. Awesome. So, again, just to remind people, what's your uh, what's your background? How did you get into um, dealing with the issue of human trafficking? So, my background is I have actually have a social work background and um, had a private counseling practice here in Colorado, and was dealing with and working with a lot of uh, domestic sexual trafficking survivors. Um, also domestic violence victims, um, sexual assault victims, a lot of other areas, and started really seeing the prevalence of it even in my own suburban area. Uh, I had been aware of it. I had worked uh, internationally uh, with um, some organizations and had understood the magnitude of it on an international level, but really was starting to see, even you know, five, six, seven years ago, the the prevalence of it here even in Colorado and how much it was not being talked about, how much we were not really understanding it. We were not creating laws to support victims and survivors. And so uh, from there, I actually uh, ran for office. I was elected for a while and sat on several boards, state and, and nationally, and still sort of was mingling with human trafficking issues and really recognized, even on a federal level, that we had a lot of laws that were being made and created about victims and survivors, but they weren't really included them on the table. And one of the instances for me was actually sitting around at a round table in Washington, D.C. and having them, a lot of elected officials discuss the effects of human trafficking and what was going on and recognizing that I was actually the only survivor at the table and um, mm -hmm. they did not know it at the time. And so, um, and I really didn't understand what it fully meant to be a human trafficking survivor at the time. I'm a, I'm a child survivor. And so really from there, you know, decided that maybe my forte wasn't so much in being elected and that my passion was helping human trafficking survivors, but really um, trying to get on the ground resources for them. There's a lot of money that's being allocated to human trafficking survivors, but it's going to organizations and the victims aren't necessarily seeing it. And then on top of it, educating our lawmakers and, and really the whole mentality of, you know, anything that is about us and for us that does not include us, it can't be something that um, really is good for trafficking survivors. So really educating our state and federal legislators on what the impact of some of the laws they put forward uh, do and where some of the funding should go um, in order to help on the ground efforts with human trafficking survivors. So to do that, I know you started an organization to try to kind of coalesce all these all these different movements and and groups to try to you know come to some kind of common common cause. Um, how's that going? 
You know, it was one of those, it's, it's funny, so I did, I started the National Human Trafficking Survivor Coalition, and, um, you know, the, the, one, the funny thing about human, the, I mean, I guess it's not funny, but the, the human trafficking movement in itself, it's an incredible movement, and there are a lot of really passionate people, and you've got survivor leaders coming forth, and you've got organizational leaders, and, and people who really are passionate about this issue, and, and passionate about understanding the magnitude of slavery that exists in the world. Uh, even today, and the fact that we have more people enslaved today than any other time in history combined. And so one of the the challenges, though, is that it, it really is a rich movement with people wanting to be involved in organizations popping up. It's a very cash flow poor movement. As far as you, you have your top, you know, five to six organizations who've really kind of cornered the market on the funding from the, from the federal government, um, which is actually really interesting because the Federal Victims Assistance Fund actually has $12 billion in it, but at any given year, it's only about 5 to 7% of that is allocated out. Well, where does so, that, whoa, 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 where's that money yeah. go to then? Well, and, and that's one of the things that we, part of the coalition, so my organization was a, a bunch of survivor leaders within Colorado, and it has since actually grown to survive, to include survivor leaders and including them in discussions and really trying to figure out what does trafficking look like in individual states and how can we best support on-the-ground efforts for survivors because one of the greatest things that we're seeing is that it is survivors themselves who are opening their homes and they're basically living at poverty level, a lot of them, opening their homes and really providing the resources and long-term support to survivors that we really don't we don't have, and, and a lot of organizations will have uh, safe houses and, and stuff like that. And, you know, one of the other things that we talked about, I actually presented um, and done in Louisiana at the, um, at the governor's conference, and one of the things we talked about is, you know, there in the United States right now there's 548 beds available for human trafficking survivors across the board. The state of Florida has only eight beds available for boys. And that's it. And any other state in the United States, there's nothing for boys. We know that boys are, are significantly rising. Between 40 to 50 percent of them are human trafficking survivors as well. But the FBI estimates that there is an estimated need of 13,000 beds a day. So we're not even really scratching the, the surface and providing some of these provisions in order to help victims move forward. Um, and then on top of it, trying to figure out where is this money being allocated. And there's a lot of organizations that do research. And, and that's the other thing that our my organization was created is to, is to start, you know, talking about the collaboration and really, you know, staying one of the other organizations that's fantastic organizations out there is the Rebecca Bender Institute. And one of the things Rebecca Bender talks about is staying in your lane and really finding what your passion is, what are you good at, and sticking to that. And then you have to collaborate with other organizations because one single organization can't provide all of the resources and all of the support in order to combat this epidemic. However, because the money is so either tightly guarded or it's not being either passed down from a federal level um, and even on a donor level, it really, there's a lot of competition and, and a lot of organizations, what we were finding are trying to do everything themselves. They're trying to provide resources for survivors. They're trying to provide counseling and, and long-term financial goals. Uh, and then also, you know, trying to raise money for themselves. And it, it just creates almost like a snowball effect. But what we're finding is a lot of these organizations end up almost trying to work on their own. 
Mm-hmm. And so one of the things we talk about is there's a huge need for collaboration. We have so many fantastic and great organizations out there, um, but it also means that survivor leaders and survivor advocates have to come together and really work together in order to meet all of the necessary provisions because only then will we be able to, to determine what are we missing from a survivor-based level and, and what things do we need to work on because every state and every organization does different things. And so could you imagine if they came together and really collaborated resources and support, how incredible that would be. And uh, one of the challenges that we're seeing is, like I said, it's a very cash poor flowing movement, but that what we're finding is that organizations are pitting themselves against each other and you've got survivor leaders working against each other. And then there's also just the way that people feel the movement should be going and not everybody sees um, the way that the movement's going is best for survivors. And so that's, those are some of the challenges that we're trying to address and trying to figure out how can we all come to the table and, and start looking at this? But, you know, definitely financial transparency is, is so important, and we need to start. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons that I work to educate our legislators, because if they don't even know where the funding is going, and when they put bills out there and how that actually impacts survivors and what it looks like, then we're really not making grounds anywhere. Yeah, so I know that you had a lot of success this year in the Colorado State Legislature, um, what happened there? Right. So there were uh, roughly uh, five human bills that pertain to human trafficking. Four of the five have been passed. One of the bigger bills that was a little bit of a disappointment, and um, that was the, um, state, we dubbed it the Safe Harbor Bill, but it was Senate Bill 84 in Colorado. And that one was actually, you know, one of the issues that we're seeing, um, and this is one that um, Shared Hope International came in on and, and Polaris came in on because they are working together recognizing that we can't prosecute child victims of human trafficking in the same way that, that adult victims who choose to be sex workers are prosecuted. And so, um, but one of the issues that we're finding in Colorado, we are a state that we have TABOR, which is the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. And so our legislature doesn't get to allocate funds to different areas that other states can do. And, and the way that it works is that the legislature has to vote to um, put a, it has to go through a long line of, of you know, finding of accountability and financial transparency, and it's got to go through appropriation. And then if it's, if it's a big bill that has funding attached to it, typically the legislators then have to vote to put it on the ballot, and then the ballot has to go to the people, mm-hmm. which looks like tax increases, and so those typically don't pass, and that's one of the challenges that we've seen in Colorado across the board, not just with human trafficking. I mean, we're, we're seeing it within our schools, within our roads, within a lot of infrastructure issues in the state that we're not, we're trying to figure out how to address. Um, However, one of the issues that that was happening is in Colorado, too, that other states were doing that we have not done is really create a deterrent program or emergency shelter situation so that when minors are getting picked up of human trafficking and the law enforcement is identifying them as such, then there's a safe place for them to go. We don't have that here, and so what we were seeing happening in some cases is that the, the children were being arrested and charged with crimes pertaining to uh, what they were having to do at, while being victims of human trafficking. And so, which could be, you know, drug possession, prostitution. And that was one of our biggest arguments is that the you know, federal statute, there is no such thing as a child prostitute. So really, 
trying to trying to figure out how do we do that. You know, one of the things that came out of it is that we've actually sent a lot of the stakeholders on this have really come together with a lot of the district attorney offices, and um, we've we've got counselors on board, and we've got a lot of other offices that deal with children in the state who are we're doing preliminary meetings trying to identify. You know, maybe this this isn't the best way to go. Maybe we need to look at figuring out the funding first and figuring out emergency placement programs, and then we can start changing the laws that way. Uh, because one of the things that law enforcement was stating is, you know, they don't have a safe place to put these children, and sometimes prison is the only safe place, mm. which in Colorado, we can absolutely do better than that, and, and we should be doing better than that, and other states have shown that, they can, that they've done better. So that, that was one of the disappointments, but, you know, as far as just the awareness and what's really going on, I'm very pleased that a lot of legislators are taking the time to understand it, and there will always be legislators that, that really, you know, even while we spent a lot of time educating them in, in some of our committee hearings, we still have legislators calling children prostitutes, and so, you know, really just educating them again on the language that they're using and how harmful yeah. that can be in terms of moving forward as well, and, and I think that you know, we're making strides, and one of the things I've learned in a long time is you can't marry your bills, and you can't attach yourself so much to them that that if they get voted down, that you're completely destroyed emotionally because of it. Because then you you get burned out, and you don't want to continue to work. Yeah, you anymore. have to you have to keep your eye on the bigger picture and right. and why you're doing it. Um, I know that you were uh, also recently in Washington, D.C. Um, were you doing similar kind of work there as far as with legislators? or? Yeah, so I'm actually, you know, on top of being the executive director of my organization, which we primarily, 100% of the funding that I raise goes straight to, to victims. So I will, in turn, um, disperse it out to other uh, survivor-led organizations and other organizations that are asking for support, you know, whether it be they need hotel placement for a night or uh, clothes or food or uh, airline tickets or bus tickets or anything like that. So that's sort of what we do, it's, and then as well as the legislative advocacy, but I'm also the legislative liaison for United Against Slavery, and um, that there, the website for them is, of course, www.unitedagainstslavery.org, but it's an incredible organization, and it's, it's, uh, the founder is Christy Weigel out of Tennessee, and one of the things that we are, are working on is there, again, in the spirit of collaboration, there has never been a complete national outreach survey done to all of the stakeholders and all of the people who are on the ground level working with survivors of human trafficking. And so what we are hoping to do, and we're making progress, is um, is actually have some legislation done for next year in order to, to introduce to Congress um, that will deal with some of the funding on this. And, and also uh, what we would like to do is in next year, and this is what our goal is, so that every single state, every single governor, and every single congressional member and senator from that state will receive a full report on what specifically does human trafficking look like in your area, and what are, what is your state doing well? What do you need to focus on? What are some of the gaps that you need to work on in the state? But it's it's the largest basically consensus report, and in all of the stakeholders that we're meeting, we've got 22 different categories of stakeholders from medical professionals all the way to you know social workers to survivors themselves to you know foster care to um, Native American groups um, you know even all the way down to just concerned citizens and we are hoping for thousands and thousands of responses so that we can really hone in on each state so that now 
know these legislatures and the governors know what does their state need to work on and what laws should they start focusing on? And so, like I said, you know, it's, it's been done in smaller levels. It's never been done on this level before. And then we're really, really seeing the importance of it. And, and so many organizations are supporting it, larger organizations as well, because they all see collectively how important this data is. And and then from there, we would like to, you know, we we had a 2016 pilot survey done where we had over 47 states participate and then also um, 70 different countries. And so we would like to continue this every two years so that the federal government knows specifically what each state is doing to combat human trafficking. And then also our relationships on international levels too with countries and uh, when we get refugees and immigrants coming in and and, um, just the relationships that we have uh, across the, the board so that we can continue to fight this epidemic together. Yeah, no, that's good. That's awesome. I, I think data drives uh, everything because without it, you can't, you know, know what direction you're supposed to be moving into. Um, one of the things that I've seen um, from several places in the past couple of months, which is really disturbing, is um, is kind of hearing stories and seeing the impact of organizations like Children and Youth, which is basically a a government agency which is charged with, you know, protecting children. Um, But really just not fulfilling what they're supposed to do. And if anything, putting children which they're charged with in more risk uh, high risk situations than protecting them. And right. I mean, it's really upsetting because here you have, you know, uh, children, they're involved with them because the kids are vulnerable anyway, based on, you know, domestic situations. But then it seems like, um, CYS is, um, you know, basically making the situation worse. And, um, how how do you get an organization that's a state-run organization to change the way they deal with children so that they, instead of creating potential victims, they're empowering them? Because, I mean, I think that's a, a huge issue, and that's one of the main reasons we have a lot, so many kids being vulnerable to trafficking. Absolutely. You know, and and one of the things, especially being a former elected individual, I I really see this. And, you know, one of the running jokes that we used to say, even in our meetings, is, you know, we're the government, we're here to help. Those are absolute words that you don't ever want to hear. And and I've really seen it firsthand on on state and and federal levels. And and one of the issues that happens when government gets too big, and then there are certain things that government is absolutely good at. And, you know, when it comes to national issues and, you know, obviously, Obviously, they have to collaborate and communicate with the states when it comes to building infrastructure and and highways and stuff like that. But, you know, one of the things that I've seen, and and this is a trend that we in the United States have sort of moved away from, is really taking away private entities and nonprofit entities' abilities to really provide services that they're really good at. And then they know how to do, and they do it with less money. And then one of the things with, with government bureaucracy is always, is, I mean, and we've seen this, gosh, you know, I live in Colorado, the home of the VA hospital. That is an absolute wonder that has happened. You know, so one of the challenges that I, I think that 
that we see is, you know, like I was saying, living in Colorado and really, um, you know, seeing the effects of, of the mismanagement of the VA hospital and what really happens when government gets too big and there's not a lot of oversight uh, or people that truly understand to to run things that they do. And, and, you know, one of the things that we see on a national scale is that a lot of these government contracts, they get put out there and then they really, they almost take the, the, the people who underbid and because that's the way that you get the contract. And so it's not, it's not only the case that the cheapest, I guess, organization to come in is the best way to manage a program. And so we, and, and, you know, one of the things that I think, and I alluded to this a little bit, we have fallen away from is the trend of really nonprofit organizations and private organizations that used to work hand-in-hand with the government on a lot of things and a lot of child welfare, you know, foster care, adoption agencies, and but really allowing them to come in and, and focus on the area that they're good at, what is their expertise, and then really making sure that the oversight is there, but they tend to do a lot more with less money. And one of the things we seem we see all the time with the federal government is, and even state governments is that's not always the case. And they will spend more money, but it doesn't necessarily mean that is the best results. And so, you know, in, in situations like this, we always ask, like, where is the oversight on this and what's going on? And in some of these government agencies, you don't necessarily have the people that actually have the education, that have the background to handle this. They're hired and they're con- or they're contract workers or, or, you know, we are not overseeing the contracts that we're fulfilling and we're not seeing who these workers are. We're not vetting them. And so not all of them have a social work background or the yeah. ability to care for these children at the magnitude of what they're taking in. And yeah. so that's some of the issues that we're seeing across the board. And, and, you know, like I said, sometimes the government running everything is not the best way to handle things. And well, the other I, thing is it all goes back to the data that you track and, and you're looking for quality right. results. You're not looking for the cheapest thing regardless of results. It's what gives you the most effective results with what you have to work with. And I mean, if you're not tracking those things and it doesn't seem like the agencies are, then right. you really are just, you know, throwing money away um, right. because it's not doing any positive, um, any positive to it. The other thing that I think that, in a larger context with what you were talking about, the the work of nonprofits working with, uh, in conjunction with government, um, I think a lot of that really suffered a severe blow with the advent of uh, block grants. Because what ended up happening, and I know this is is true in Pennsylvania, is it really changed the dynamic away from kind of um, organizations standing on their own merit and really became, you know, a do-or-die kind of thing. It's uh, you either won or you lost. There wasn't any... Um, everybody has the ability to win. It was, you know, your dollars are going to have to come out of somebody else's, you know, nonprofit budget. And obviously when you, when you're cutting back in terms of state budgets and that's the mentality, you're not going to have positive social results with what you're, what you're doing. Absolutely. You know, and then that really is, and, and, there were so many stipulations on a lot of these block grants and, and really, 
I mean, I've, I've been working in Washington, D.C. long enough to, to recognize that if you don't know somebody and you don't have a relationship with somebody or, you know, whether or not it's like your congressman or your senator, you're not going to get very far, especially when it comes to, to funding on the federal level. And, um, and and this is one of the things that we're seeing is, again, some of these larger organizations who've been around and have had the ability to raise a lot of money, they can hire more expensive lobbyists to yeah. continue to fight for them to get this funding as well. And so a lot of these smaller nonprofits, a lot of these other groups, and um, you know, and I'll throw a dirty word in there because everybody's so afraid of them, but religious organizations. And really, a lot of the really good on-the-ground work that was done, and I mean, when you're talking about dealing with homeless shelters and providing resources and education programs, they were done through religious organizations. We've really moved away from that because there's such a fearful of, you know, of, of being separating church and state. And, and I think that, you know, just, again, there's a place for every single organization. We need to allow these organizations to be able to come in. And obviously, you know, we have to have stipulations on them. We have to have rules and there has to be oversight because you can't just let them run amok. But when there is no oversight in Washington, how do we expect them to provide oversight for any of the, the groups that they're supposed to be watching out for who have received this money? And, um, you know, and I mean, this goes way back, and, and I think we're seeing a lot of this issue, especially with what's going on on the borders right now, and some of these organizations that have been contracted by the government yeah. for hundreds of millions of dollars. And, it's crazy. And this isn't just the Trump administration. I think it's very easy for us to blame one administration, and mm-hmm. I, can, I could list off how many areas that I'm un- unhappy with some of the stuff that they're doing, but this goes back to previous administrations, too, and, and these organizations have been allowed to continue to work for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years continually. And and it really isn't until we see, you know, or there's, there's a political, I, I guess, dissatisfaction because nobody was talking about these immigrant children five years ago or 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And they were being placed in very similar situations because it was the same contract in the same group. And so I think that's something that, that the American people need to sort of wake up on and kind of step outside of their political ideologies and their comfort zones and, and recognize that this is, it doesn't matter which political side it is, this stuff is continuing to happen. Well, it's the, um, it it's corporate, it's corporate lobbying in order to obtain, you know, money from the government. Right. So, right, right. um, it doesn't care about political party. It cares about, Hey, I want my money, but you know, as a people, you need to stand up and say, you know, these are our tax dollars at work, and this isn't right. working. Right. You know, and I've really found this even on the human trafficking side, and you know, and and I have, I have, you know, friends from so many different levels, and and you know, there really are people that that want to understand it, and they want to, they're compassionate about it, and and they they want to figure out what's something that they can do. But then I've also got other friends that are like, you know what, I don't have the ability to handle this. Like, you know, they're passionate about other areas, whether or not it's the environment or um, animals or, you know, anything else. But they can't talk about children being abused or they can't talk about, you know, women being trafficked. They just it's not where they are. And so, you know, I think recognizing that it's not we we can't judge people for where their passions are and, and where their empathy lies, because we don't know where they are. And and I think all we can do is encourage everybody to just go out there and do the job that you can do and support where you can. Yeah. What, um, we're getting close to the end here. Um, what, it's my feeling that 
there's way more people who have suffered abuse and this kind of trafficking um, than society is willing to recognize. I think a lot of a lot of problems um, start from abuse when kids are young. How do how do people help children heal from that kind of experience? Like, what is the actual activity or go-to that gets somebody to a point where they're able to get to the next day? Right, right. You know, and it, it, it's interesting because I, I think one of the things I've found, and especially, you know, whether or not it was, you know, with, with working in a counseling practice with, with survivors or, you know, even through my own journey and my own healing and, and, and reaching out and talking to other people, not everybody heals on the same level and yeah. not everybody, um, you know, there, there's no 12 step program to healing and there's no, there's nothing that we can do. You know, certain situations that happen to people will have, you know, you could have a hundred people in a room all experience the same thing and you're going to have a hundred different reactions and a hundred different, you know, long-term effects. And, um, you know, and, and I think that that's something we have to recognize. And, and one of the, I think the greatest thing is just understanding not everybody, and, and, you know, and I've said this before to a lot of survivor groups, and it's interesting, not everybody wants to be fixed. They don't, they don't sometimes want to come to you and talk to you uh, and share their story with you because they want you to fix them or they mm-hmm. want you to heal them. Yeah. Sometimes they just want to be heard, and they just want to have, you know, and they, they want to have integrity, and they want they want to be treated with dignity. And, and, and I think, you know, human nature it, Sometimes what we do is we tend, especially if we're empathetic people, we want to heal them and we want to provide them with solutions. And if they don't follow the solutions that we think they should or or they don't do or, or act the way that we would have acted or we think they should, we tend to judge them. And yeah. so by doing that, we're shutting the door to their healing and, and, and then that trust and relationship. And so one of the biggest things for kids, and I say this, you know, just meet them at their level and just listen. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, even though they're little people, they're still, they want to be treated with respect by adults. And, and some of that means that the adult has to come down to their level and just, just be humble and listen. Don't, don't ask them for details. Don't, yep. don't tell them how they need to heal or what they need to do. Just, just say, you know what, I'm here to walk with you. And, and I'm also here to not judge you because that's the, one of the greatest things is, you are so judged throughout your entire life based yeah. on what you do. And, and a lot of it is people not understanding that you're a product of what happened to you. And one of the, the bigger pushes that I talk about when I go to Washington and, and really on a state level is, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the ACEs model, which is um, understanding trauma in children. And one of the things that we're really trying to do is to declare adverse childhood sexual trauma as yeah. a national health crisis. And yeah, I think we've talked about this before. But really recognizing, because some, what's happening is a lot of these kids are going through foster care, they're, getting, they're going through, you know, they're going to doctor's offices, they're being diagnosed with all these issues because we're trying to fix them, and we're really reacting to what happened to them instead of setting up preventative programs. And, and we're really, I mean, I think that the United States is really going to have a huge issue, especially in the next 10, 20, 30 years with the long-term effects of childhood trauma on people and what it does to their DNA, what it does to their body. And 
you know, and I've said this to people, I, before the age of 29, I had three different cancer diagnoses and, you know, had to go through and and where my body ended up with diabetes and different things that traditionally my doctor is like, you probably shouldn't have had, but recognizing the stress that goes through your body and how your body is held on to that, it's no wonder this has manifested this way. And, and I think that this is really something we need to look at as a society, especially when we talk about healthcare and where that's going to be, because our healthcare system, it's, it's not perfect right now, but it's absolutely going to be broken. And I think we can see examples of this around the United States already in very impoverished areas or areas where uh, incest and sexual abuse is actually more accepted. Mm-hmm. And we see it within the adult products of, of what has come out of there. And not only is this just the violent circle that continues with their children, but also the chronic health issues, too. Exactly. And that's, yeah. You know, no, I completely agree, and I, um, you know, the whole issue of um, of not judging, I think, is really key because um, the individual going through, having gone through that experience, was being feels like they were being judged by the person who did the abuse. They were told that they were bad. They were told that this happened right. because they were bad, and and they live that and i know this from you know experience with other people that they continue to live this for 50 60 70 years every day right, right. and the magnitude of going through something like that um the only thing that i've found that can offset that is really like you said not judging but unconditional love and that Absolutely. means that means just accepting them for who they are and being able to take a hand and you know let them heal in their own time you can't you know you can't force somebody to change you because they're going to deal with what they've gone through in whatever time period they they can but you know as long as one person is there that makes all the difference it doesn't take an army full of people to help one person it takes one person to help one person and i think we all can do that you know right right for sure you know and one of the things that i i've said you know i I presented at a couple conferences this summer and one of the things i i always put up there the number seven and i said you know and and i'll put up a childhood picture of myself and and it's usually I'm, i'm about two years old in that picture and and it's just an innocent picture and i'm sucking my fingers and i i you know and, and people look at it and i said this is what a childhood is supposed to look like however that number seven for me that represents the number of adults that i went to for help before the age of 13 hmm. who didn't listen to me who yep. ignored me or who either mocked me yep. or who made the abuse worse and yep. so you know, that, that is something that completely transcends to your psyche. And, and, and that's something that, while I've even had to work through the, the stage of forgiveness with some of those people, and a lot of it wasn't really, James, because they didn't want to help me. I recognize now they didn't have the skills to, and they didn't have the awareness to understand what was going on. And, uh, you know, and, there, and so part of that for me is a forgiveness piece of yeah. working through that with them and releasing them. And, and, you know, one of the other things I think as a survivor, and, and we see this a lot, is I always say to people, when I go out and I tell my story, this, you know, it's a powerful story, but it's mine to own. And I don't want people taking responsibility for it. 
and I don't want people owning it. And, and that's one of the bigger fears, I think, with a lot of survivors coming forward is that that fear of that secondhand trauma and what is your story going to do to somebody if you tell them and you know and I'll say on survivor blogs all the time a lot of survivors are like you know what I just need someone to talk to I don't need a therapist I don't need to be fixed Um, and I don't and and I'm really fearful of you know my story is, is delicate it's traumatizing and it's awful and I don't need somebody who's going to own that piece of my story I need somebody who's going to listen and say okay you know what that was really crappy that was a horrible experience, and now look where you are, and let's continue to move on. And, and because sometimes we just need that too, and not. And I think people they tend to not recognize that they tr- their reactions sometimes keep survivors in the victim mode and mentality, versus saying, you know, like there are bad things that happen, and there yeah. are bad people out there, but we can't continue to live as products of our past. And, yeah. and a lot of your survivor leaders, that's sort of what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean the I don't I think people don't recognize the fact that it's that a person who's come from that kind of situation can be so easily triggered in by one word or one experience and something happens and a switch is flipped and all of a sudden you're down a rabbit hole. That person's down a rabbit hole and a lot of times they don't understand why and let alone the people that they're with and so just having compassion in terms of recognizing you know what you say to other people has an impact um just be conscious of that and you know just love with with recovery also comes responsibility and and i say this to survivors all the time that you now are responsible And, and i think this is one of the reasons that we see people across the board that sometimes fail on their journeys or they fall on their journeys and, and, and kind of get setbacks on and where they are because sometimes it is the one thing as a, as a child survivor and, and as you know a survivor in general, we know what our traffickers are going to do to us. We know what the repercussions are going to be if we say no or if we defy them. We know what the punishment is going to be. And it's something that while it's scary, we know what's coming. When you have moved past that and you have found your freedom, there are so many unknowns with yeah. freedom, and it yeah. is scary. Yeah. And with that, there's a lot of responsibility and, and claiming ownership in your healing. And not every survivor has the ability to do that. And and not, I think, like on the ways, a lot of people tend to think is, well, okay, they've been rescued and they've been pulled out of their situation. Now they can move on and have a great life. And yeah. and sometimes what happens after the survivorship or, or after being victimized is just as scary and just as traumatizing. Yeah, I mean, no doubt, no doubt. I mean, you have to keep in mind that this is going to be with the person every day for the rest of their life. You know, it's not that a person gets over it or forgets it. It's it's there. So right, right. You know, well, and I mean, if you don't think I have to take a shower every day, and I there are scars on my body every day, and so. Even days that I don't think about it, every once in a while you'll catch a glimpse and, and you're like, oh, I know where that scar came from. Mm-hmm. So you don't ever get past that. And, and I think that's something that is important for people to know that while it is imperative that we can move on and we can heal, but allowing them to have the space to grieve every single day for what happened. And, and sometimes the grief is, is joy and, and, and yeah. it doesn't always necessarily mean it's a bad thing, but it's completely part of that continual process. Awesome. 
Hey, I appreciate your taking the time. We've run a little bit longer, but uh, I think it was definitely, definitely worth it for, uh, again, awareness, I think, is key for everybody to kind of understand what's going on. If the, if people want to learn more about the work that you're doing and contact you, uh, how can they reach out to you? How can they learn more? So the best way is you can email me at uh, director at nhtsc.org. And then also, um, you know, you can contact me through the um, National Human Trafficking Survivor Coalition website and the United Against Slavery website as well. And then, um, yeah, you know, we're, or I'm also on social media as well, uh, spreading awareness. So that's another good way to contact me. Awesome. Well, I appreciate your taking the time to chat today and to kind of catch everybody up. It's, um, you know, it's always enlightening, I think, to talk and to um, be able to share what's going on and just give people a better understanding. So thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for all that you're doing as well. Awesome. Thanks, Kelly. I'll talk to you later.